to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 124. 124, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's been, a, been an interesting week this week. We got a, a little bit of sad news to announce. Um, you know, we when I went down to Baffin Bay earlier this earlier this year, they were sponsors to the show, and just sad to hear, man. Yeah, yeah. For those who aren't familiar, haven't seen LinkedIn, um, the the if you go back to the, the podcast, we went down there. Uh, Aubrey and Sally ba- uh, Black would come on the show, and they were the owners down there. And uh, Captain Aubrey passed away Thursday or Friday. I, I think we found out Fridays when we heard about it. I'm not sure if it was Thursday or Friday. So we will link to. Um, their Facebook and their LinkedIn in the show notes so that, um, you know, if they have a GoFundMe or whatever, our listeners want to support that, we'll be sure to link to that. Um, they, I did see Sally this morning say that they're still going to be open for business and continue going as planned. It's just um, obviously a terribly sad loss. So, um, so sad to hear that. We also had a friend die last week, Josh, a gentleman that we knew as well. So rough week last week. Um, but, but there was a bit of good news. And let's bring this one on you here. Last week we had on to make things worse. Uh, Reed Goodman, who was talking about how you're his favorite host. You remember? Do you happen to remember that? I do. You remember that? Okay. I remember okay. that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Distinctly. Distinctly. Yeah. That's it. Wasn't very good on my end. But anyways, um, so I was talking to another listener and just brought up the fact. Hey, just curious. What do you think? You know. And this is how he answered the question. I'll let you determine what you think, who he thinks the favorite is here. He said, John, I'm sorry, I told him that that, that someone had said that you were the favorite, that you're the favorite host, whatever. And this is what he said. He said, quote, Josh has a unique laugh. I will give him that, end quote. So I'm not saying that I'm that guy's favorite, but I'm saying he, you know, he just said that he's going to give you your unique laugh. So, <laughs> well, hopefully it makes everybody's Tuesday morning. Unique I gotta, laugh. Uh, <laughs> All this work and my comments on the laugh. Oh man! So I did that. That did make uh, a pretty bad week. Uh, a little bit, a little bit better. A couple news and notes, Josh, uh, for the listeners here. We have kind of a crazy schedule coming up, um, so we will still be releasing on our normal time frame. But I know I will be out at least one show here in the next month and a half, uh, maybe two, but one show for sure. And so, um, just want to let the folks know about that. By the time by the time this comes out, I will be in Denver, Colorado. It comes out tomorrow morning, right, Nate? So I'll be in Denver, Colorado. So if you haven't been in Denver, I have a little bit of time open on Wednesday. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, that will be in the show notes or however else you want to reach me. And then. Um, We'll be at the George H.W. Bush Foundation U.S. for U.S.-China Relations Conference October 28th, 29th. I already had one listener reach out, want to meet up. So anyone else that's in Houston those days, let me know. We have on Reed's brother, Robin, actually coming on a little bit to talk about the foundation and what's going on with all of that. And then, of course, going to China here, Josh, in uh, a few months. And so pretty pretty excited about the opportunity to go to mainland China. I've, I've never been. I've been working on my Mandarin. It is terrible, but I do know like three sentences um i can really speak english but i decided to take up mandarin because you know reasons so do you let me ask you this over under how many sentences can i get out by the time i go to china in a month 
You get three now. I'm wagering four. Four. <laughs> I've got a peaked already. <laughs> That's not an easy language. I, I, can, what I, hear. I can actually. I can say like, do you want? It's it's like they, the way they set structure is like won't not won't. So do you want? Um, I can say fried noodles, fried rice. Um, Mapo tofu. I don't know if I say that right, but that's how I say it. Um, tea. And I can say, do you want to go somewhere? Like, do you want to go to, uh, you know, if I knew the city, like Beijing or whatever. So, you know, I can say that that, that in a couple different iterations and ask you this question. So I'm basically fluent, basically at this point. You are well prepared for, for a career as a waiter in a Beijing <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> So, anyway, so if we have any listeners in China, I will be in Beijing uh, in November. Um, anyways, Josh, we did have a question from a listener, Nate, from Twitter. We had a question. They didn't ask the username, so we will not use the name, but we do have okay. a question, so we'll read the question and um, see if we can answer it. Yeah, the question is, I'm looking for your insider guidance. I wanted to start off with some background on myself and what has led me to want to move in the right direction. So we've got a long introduction to this person. I have a Bachelor of Arts in communications, radio and broadcasting, and a master's in Spanish. I started in the energy industry, Pacific Summit Energy, about three years ago and fell in love with it. After losing my job in May of this year, it's been difficult to find a job in the energy industry. I've applied to multiple jobs in the industry, gas scheduling, business development, anything to get my foot back in the door, and nothing happened. Not enough experience, too much experience for entry-level jobs, internships are only for students in college. The biggest questions I get is in my degree. My degree doesn't fit with scheduling. Some people would prefer accounting or finance degrees. I'm not giving up, but someone suggested I go back to school and get a master's in accounting, finance, or a master's of science in global energy management at the University of Houston. Would you think this would help? Would a master's in global energy management really get me in the door for jobs at Chevron or Shell or other big super majors? I am stubborn and set on staying in the energy industry, but I never thought my bachelor's of arts would hold me back this much. I hope you guys can help, and I hope this isn't weird, but I have no idea who else to turn to or who else can guide me. And love listening. Look forward to next week's podcast. Thanks. Well, let's start by saying, as someone once famously said, this is two of the most brilliant minds walking the face of the earth. So she went to the right spot, I feel like. Agreed. Especially Agreed. for what she's paying for. So, <laughs> you know, it works out pretty well. Um, you know, I read this, Josh, and one the thing that struck out to me most was that she mentioned the super majors, the big boys, um, the Shells, the Chevrons, Exxons, things like that. And I think that when you are trying to get a job with those companies, the degree requirements, unless they're really in a bind, are probably going to matter more. However... If she went to a small EMP company, um, you know, maybe PE backed or even family owned and operated, you might have a better shot there. That was kind of my initial thoughts was um, if you're targeting the big companies, then you might need to go back and get that degree because it's going to be hard, you know, because they, they have boxes they're checking. Check, yep. check, check, check. And if you don't hit those boxes, they probably aren't giving you a lot of time. Yeah, look at you, yeah. They have so many applicants. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Smaller companies uh, would, would definitely provide more flexibility. And, uh, I mean, they, they may not have pensions, but they, the pay would be, I think, decent. I think it's just going to be some of the benefits that, that are going to be at the bigger companies that are uh, probably going to be hard to replicate. And beyond that, Ryan, I, I don't know how competitive it is that some of these companies, even with those degrees, to get in. Um, 
it's a lot of money to go spend to get the degree and then you also still have to kind of get in line which i think there are there are people that are partnering with different universities so there's a possibility that there may be a a, a guaranteed track in that way yeah and that would be the other question is is it a deal where you're spending two years eighty thousand dollars to get a master's in finance or is it like a 12-month accelerated course you can get online and it's 15 grand you know, those are two fundamentally different mm-hmm. things. If it's the the if it's the twelve if it's twelve months, fifteen grand, it might be worth the risk. If you're talking about eighty thousand dollars, and I don't, you know, I'm, we, we know, I don't have a college degree, so I don't exactly know where all this falls in. But um, I think that would be it. So a couple things is one, I would talk to some recruiters and to say, hey, this is the type of job I want to get. These are the types of companies I want to work for. Is it worth it? Um, because these guys do deal with Exxon, you know, Chevron, Shell, whomever, on a daily basis. So they're going to have some insight there. Um, the second thing is I would seriously sit down and consider, I don't know what these jobs pay at Exxon or Chevron or wherever, um, but if it's a $60,000 a year job and you're going to take out, I'm, I'm presuming a student loan, if you're going to take out a student loan especially and you're going to put in you know, sixty to seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 of student debt, I'm not sure that's the, the risk reward you want to take, uh, at least not the one I'd want to take. So I think I would explore a couple of options. Like you said, maybe you should go to look for smaller companies. I talk to recruiters, um, and then there's always the vendor side of things. Can you come to the vendor side of the business, get some experience, and then transition back over there? Um, I know some companies that are pretty big, that if they require a degree, but it's really a, just a degree. And so if you have a degree, after you have the experience, that they're kind of lax on the uh, the type of degree because you have the experience. So you might can go pick up your experience somewhere else and then go to the company you want to because you have the experience and you have a degree. Whereas right now it sounds like you don't have necessarily experience, so they're focusing more on what the degree's in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that would be that would be my advice. Um, talk to a recruiter, try smaller MPs, um, and then again, really weigh this out. If it's sixty thousand dollars and you're going to spend sixty thousand on the degree, what's the upside here? Is the upside a, a job that's paying one hundred twenty, two hundred thousand quarterly bonuses? What is your upside? Because it might be a deal where you go back, you get the gr- degree, you get the job you want, but you know you're really struggling because you you, you went to um, a lot of a lot of student loan debt. That student loan debt. Is one of the, it's the only one that can't be relieved through bankruptcy, right? And the student loans is the only thing that can't be relieved through bankruptcy. Am I right on that? I don't know. I think I'm right on that. I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the few types of um, few types of loans that can't be um, relieved under under bankruptcy. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty confident that's true. And so it's, it sticks it sticks with you for a long, long time. A long time, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and just to flesh something out, you said Ryan about going on the vendor side. Um, but we meet people in industry all the time that are not directly working in oil and gas that are selling services to mm-hmm. oil and gas or products. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, you get relationships that way with people that in, in the industry and find opportunities that way. So, Well, and there's a guy, we're not going to say his name, but there's a guy that we know um, who is relatively close to us. And you would never think of him as an EMP company, but he's a de facto EMP company and de facto mainstream company maybe. And so you could work for someone like that. Probably wouldn't necessarily, I don't know, probably wouldn't necessarily require the degree. Um but there's people like that out there that, that, and you know, there could be a large upside potentially um, staying loyal to someone like that for a lot of years. So there's a lot of different things. Um, it's easy to say that Nate's corrected me already. He said it's incorrect. You can get rid of it. Um, 
you can't get rid of it under bankruptcy. But anyways, it is easy to to get in with small companies. I would consider that recruiters. I wouldn't necessarily chase the degree just to get in with Chevron. And thanks, Nate, for right in the middle of my speech to tell me I was incorrect on bankruptcy. You didn't so. have to interrupt yourself, man. I, I didn't interrupt you for that very reason. Okay, so get student loans and file bankruptcy. That's my that's my fourth option. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so the stories we got for the week, Ryan. Uh, first one is from Reuters. U.S. shale oil boom ends as lower prices take toll. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this here shortly, but uh, they look at onshore and offshore uh, production. One of the comments here, on sh- onshore production from the lower 48 states, months of it from shale plays actually increased by 63,000 barrels per day to a multi-decade high of 9.7 million barrels per day. Um, so the production is, is going up. What they're, what they're showing here is looking at the statistics with the prices going down or staying where they're at, production is going to level out and begin to decrease um, and begin to go back the other direction. Um, so they are seeing these signs are, are the, the, the time is here where production is going to start going down. It's still breaking records, but it's about to start decreasing based on the current trends. Yeah, well, you know, as we talked about before, you got to once the drilling slows down, it still takes a little while to get the wells on, so you'll see a, a lag um, there. It does have to fall, but this is, again, talk about ducks. Here we go. We'll, what's going to happen with the ducks argument? And I think we're getting closer and closer to finding out. I'm looking at the price right now. It's fifty three ninety three. I'd be curious. I don't know if the EIA, I don't remember when they released their updated duck information. Um... I'm looking right now. I don't, I don't see the. Uh, I don't see on the homepage. I had to look later on. But yeah, so I think we're getting closer. It is. It is true. And when we have a guest coming on later on, who's going to talk about the fact that he believes that demand growth is consistently undervalued. And I do agree in theory what he's saying um, that the demand growth is severely undervalued. And you know, Josh, where where was I? I was somewhere. I was somewhere last week, and I was talking to someone about either South America or Africa, and I was talking about just kind of some of the, 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 the growth that they should be expecting and, you know, and, and the, 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 the frustration that you have to have as someone trying to calculate that, and they're kind of echoing those sentiments, and I think that's part of what you'll see here. Um, yeah, it's going to fall. How rapidly will it fall? And then you got to kind of weigh in the Spigner element here, right? So if the prophet of doom is sitting here and he's right that these companies are going to, you know, basically fall off the cliff and die, then that could actually accelerate it because you not only would have a decrease in drilling, you could theoretically have a decrease in the ducks being finished too because, you know, if you're not finished, you, know, you could you may not finish your ducks because you don't have the capital, you're in bankruptcy, you're trying to sell, whatever the case would be. So you could have a lot of different uh, uh, factors that are coming in here and I know Speakner has been texting me I hadn't been quoting him too much on the show but he is getting quite giddy about the prospects of, I say giddy but he's um, it feels like his predictions are coming true sooner than later and that would actually while it would hurt the industry in some spots it would actually help the price because again less rigs less production the price is going to rebound uh, and hit, hit up the right direction so it's um, we the, the I don't want to say the end is near because you never know but it feels like first quarter next year you should see this thing turn over assuming there's not six billion ducks out there they're going <laughs> to start flowing you should feel like first quarter next year this thing should turn back over and the prices should rise of course by the end we talk about what's OPEC going to do election year trade war you know all that kind of stuff will be uh, what we're following but I think that I think we are closer to the end than the beginning of this thing 
Well, the next one, uh, next article from Forbes, uh, U.S. natural gas reserves continue to soar. Um, so this is looking at uh, the natural gas reserves, and you know they they look in you know one of the main topics here from October 3rd, Marcellus, they had estimates that started at $2 trillion, went up to $84 trillion, and now they're $97 trillion. Uh, and that's over a 20-year period of time. That's the estimates uh, of stores that are, that are there in the Marcellus. So that is just a tremendous amount of growth and expectation uh, over a 20-year period. I mean, I don't know how you, how, how would you quantify that? $2 trillion, $97 trillion, would that be like Two hundred fifty thousand percent increase. Again, I don't, I don't have the degree here, so you, you and Nate got to battle out those big numbers between the two of you. Well, two hundred percent increase would be four trillion, and it's ninety-seven. So, um, yeah, so it, it was, they were bad off. They were very, <laughs> very off. Either that, or we're really bad off now. You know, we're very inaccurate in our estimates. Uh, but it's interesting to see that there's so much gas that that is available. Um, the issue is, is that the amount of money that it takes to get it from point A to point B uh, that and all the infrastructure that's needed is what's creating some of the difficulty yeah I, I, you know it's the natural gas business is so interesting because every time it feels like we talk about this on the show every six months here it comes here comes natural gas and then you'll see something like this and another report I, I don't know what it's going to take to get natural gas prices up long term but it just feels like it's just not going to happen anytime soon because the reserves keep going up. We're flaring it off, and I'm not sure how much longer that's going to continue, but we are flaring it off. Um, they are finding new ways to use the natural gas, and you're hearing some, um, you know, some, some consideration about maybe doing that. It's interesting because, oh gosh, I have to look this up, but T Boone, you know, back where in northeast Louisiana where we're from, T Boone, um, was going to put a plant there at one time talking about uh, using natural gas cars and that was it had to be 2007 or 8 they're looking at doing that and you know i wonder today if he were obviously if he were alive and he were pushing that narrative if it would get a lot more traction than it did back then because back then prices were so high um, and things like that whereas today it's like okay we're kind of the inverse of that prices are low the reserves are you know, un, un, unbelievable. I wonder if, if if someone with that stature and that weight um, could throw around those these ideas if it'd get the support that he didn't really get back then. Well, you know, the big thing we talked about last week too was you know LNG projects and mm-hmm. LNG growth that could be going. I mean, India, China, and then infrastructure that needs to be developed. Um, so. Natural gas is the big, the big unknown right now. With, with but I, yeah, I just don't know. I, I just, I. You would be smart. It's kind of this question is, you almost would be smart to lock in you know, these LNG contracts for 20, 25 years. You'd be smart to lock it up now, but you also wonder. You know, if we continue to aggressively find natural gas, um, is it really? Could you actually get it for cheaper later on because the price just never goes up? Um, so the price could stay low for long, long terms, and you could you could actually play the market a little differently. Whereas you lock it up now for twenty five years, but God, it's so cheap. I don't know. It just you think it's going to turn the corner, but it never it never can. It yeah. just never can turn the corner. Well, uh, some information came out you know we've been tracking the mexico uh u.s relations especially with energy um 
back in 2015, a company called Talus Energy uh, found nearly a billion barrels uh, off Mexico's southern Gulf Coast, and they had a presidential election um, about a year and a half after that. And what's happened with the relations has really uh, not gone in the direction we want it to. Uh, a Mexico company called Pemex is seeking to take control of this U.S. oil firm's billion barrel find. So a U.S. company found it, new president comes in, stops what's going on in the development, and now trying to authorize a Mexican company, Pemex, to come in and take control of what a U.S. oil firm, Talos, or Talos Energy found. I feel like we predicted this on the show. Yeah, we did. <laughs> I feel like we predicted that when you open up the doors to capitalism, people are going to come in there and they're going to, you know, spend their money, deploy their resources, find stuff. And then if you don't have good contractual setups and then you reverse all that, then we said we're going to watch to see how this shakes out. And here's a story which is kind of scary. This is part of the issue when you think about the trade war with China. It's the same thing is that all of a sudden, you know, the government's just putting, sending false signals to the market. They're putting pressure on the market to act certain ways. Same thing here, except for this is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more authoritative in the sense of they could literally just take it. I, I'm sure they'll probably settle on some point, but it is it is a little bit disappointing. You go out there and you you know try to develop these resources, and yeah, and then you you, you have a change in government, and then boom, you you take it away. So this is when we talk about you know government interference and stuff like that. This is a prime example, and I had hoped I had hoped that when Oberdor um, came in, that he would kind of let what had happened happen, and then moving forward he'd stop stuff but you know Pemex is not is not exactly has the best reputation in the world either so it's not like you're handing it over to a to a company who's got a great track record so I'm not and I don't know about about Talos or however you say their name I don't think about those guys I can't speak to whether they would be better in Pemex or not but it can't be much worse so this was um, a sad story to see because you know it's what we were afraid of and if Mexico goes back in two years or whatever the next election is four years and they go back to the previous policy you know if you're if you're a foreign investor do you go down there and try again or do you go you know what well we saw what happened so you, you see you can kind of create this door where you have a good policy and you have a bad policy you have a good policy you have a bad policy it seem that that would you know that could really um, hurt outside the chances of outside investors to come invest inside in your country because you're not being consistent with your um, your foreign trade agreements and uh, not trade agreements your foreign your it's not foreign policy actually I guess it's a um, internal company uh, country policy that you're kind of flipping the script on. Yeah, Ryan, you know somebody coming in and kind of Debo and uh, Talus Energy kind of <laughs> reminds me Debo of like. <laughs> It reminds me of like slaving away on a podcast for like two and a half years and somebody commenting on a u- unique laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of, you know, texting with the fellow regularly, taking his brother fishing, uh, you know, doing all these stuff. And then he comes on and throws out your name as his favorite host. So listen, that can go both ways. Okay. That can cut both ways. That's fair. Yeah, the unique laugh hurt a little bit, didn't it? That kind of kind of got you. Mm. <laughs> so uh, our, our good friend David Blackman, he uh, he wrote an article. Uh, New natural gas advocacy group hopes to fill void once occupied by producers. Um, and then the, I guess the trend of what he's saying here is that um, there was a, a negative push for advocacy groups to really vilify fracking, and so there was a, a many moves being made to 
try to get as ne as much negative coverage on fracking as possible and there wasn't a good response from uh, the pro energy side to come in and try to help hold on did he not see my deal on castro oh. I, I i feel like he missed that I mean, I feel like that. Cha I mean, you have have you? Let's ask this: Have you heard them talk about anti-fracking since I laid the smack down? <laughs> I mean, see, I mean, listen, Nate, have you heard it? I haven't heard them talk about anti-fracking since I laid the smack down on them. I feel like that kind of stopped the tide right there. I mean, has it? I haven't heard a thing about it. It miraculously disappeared. Tell me if you've heard something. Uh, was that before <laughs> Greta? I was talking about here in the U.S. I <laughs> I was talking about over here in the U.S. The, the presidential candidates. I I thought I stifled them. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't help what they're doing in uh, Eng England or Europe or wherever she was. I can't control that. But U.S. policymakers, I thought I I thought I was the the force that stopped them. He is right, but you know this is the the thing. Was it me and you talking the other day that if someone like Warren gets in, um, what we and, and, and they you know sign some executive order to ban fracking, what we should do? Was that me and you talking about that? We may have. Uh, well, we've talked about yeah. it before, okay. but I don't. So here's my deal: if 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 Warren or um, I guess she's kind of front runner now, or Biden or whomever gets in, and you know they've said that they're Bernie, they said they're gonna. Um, you know, ban fracking. I think that the response from the oil and gas company should be pretty simple. They get in January, what, 4th is usually, they swear in day, something like that, 4th, 5th. Okay, so they swear them in the 5th. They go to the Oval Office. They sign in the, the executive order to ban fracking. I think Exxon, Chevron, Shell, although every oil and gas company should have a standard press release written today, based upon the president's executive order, we are saddened to announce that we are going to lay off X amount of percentage of our labor force immediately effective two weeks from today um the markets so we know we know they're actually going to do this because they don't believe it but if they did just think of how the markets would react to that gasoline would go up to ten dollars a gallon and then all of the major um oil and gas companies if they, if they instead of filing injunctions and try to stop it they just pretend to go along and they said they're gonna lay off tens of thousands of americans what do you think would happen day one and a half after that executive order was signed it'd be tore up <laughs> burnt and then the whoever the idiot was that proposed it would have no mandate for four years would literally be a lame duck president for the remainder because the idea that you had was so stupid on day one that you've wasted for you'd probably have to resign i mean you probably have to resign because you'd have no mandate so if that happens, that's my advice to oil and gas companies, is sit back, say you're laying off whatever percentage of your workforce, you're saddened by the president's actions, but you know what, they're the new president. Gasoline prices would go up to $15 a gallon, oil would shoot through the roof, the stock market would plummet, and they would, the presidency would essentially be over day one. I would personally enjoy this, the spectacle of that. That would be quite funny to watch someone who thought they were going to be a, um, a bastion of hope and just you know, have their hopes and dreams crushed in front of them. But I don't know, Josh, what, 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 do you think that would uh, I think that'd play out? Well, would, it, would it last more than a couple of hours? <laughs> I, it wouldn't last too long, I, I can tell you that. And it seems to me that it would, I think the, the facts of what she's looking at would dawn on her before. Oh, yeah. She doesn't believe it. But if no, she did. No, she doesn't. So, David, I do take Quam with you. We laid the smack down on those groups on this podcast. Um, but here's the thing, the final thing on this is that it's, it's like, you know, oil's bad and now natural gas is bad. It's what 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 can we do? Because we can't we can't produce either without someone without someone getting mad at us, um, you know, for for putting out something. And well, 
I mean, so I agree with David. Someone needs to be, you know, routinely spin this message. But if you can't have oil and you can't have nitric gas, and and you can't have nuclear and you can't have hydro, so you've got like wind and solar. And I'm not even anti wind or solar, but I think we need a little bit more than that. Yeah. Well, uh, last two articles that we have, Ryan, are uh, the first one is just kind of a kind of a news thing. This is uh, from the Dallas Morning News. The title of the article is Qatar is using cheap natural gas to cut car pollution. Texas can do it too. Um, so I, I looked through the article some, and uh, yeah, I think I think it's more of a headline headline story. Not not too much here. Um, but they're, you know, they talk a little bit about LNG market and how Qatar is trying to capitalize on cheap gas and trying. Well, yeah, they're like what number one, I think it is, in you know, natural gas. They're they're way up there. Maybe number two. They're super high. Um, this kind of goes back to that deal I talked about a minute ago. You know, back when um, T Boone, I think it was T Boone, was talking about the the uh, the car stuff. I wonder if that would get the traction now. But we've almost gone now to the kind of Tesla battery powered car. I wonder if we should go back and reexamine some of that natural gas talk that we had a decade ago go and last thing ryan roan resources enters into a definitive merger agreement to be acquired by citizen energy uh is valued to be approximately one billion uh so roan resources being acquired by citizen energy Yep, that's the kind of buyout we are looking for on this show. Still to this day, I believe. I don't think we've lowered our... We haven't lowered our price, have we? Nate, have we lowered our price? If anything, we've raised it. We've raised it. Have we got any offers? No. No offers. Okay. So we are still taking offers. We haven't got any offers. We would love a competitive bid. However, we will take $1 billion sight unseen as well. I mean, everyone's got a price, and so we're, we're, we'll be happy to take that. So... This week we have a guest, Robin Goodman. He's Director of Business Programs and Corporate Affairs at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Robin, great to have you on the show today, man. How's it going? Hey, great to be on. I appreciate uh, you getting me on. Long-time listener here, and uh, it's really good to be talking with you guys about Texas oil and gas. Well, it's good to have you on. Your brother caused a huge controversy last week so let's go ahead and get this out of the way uh, your brother came on and much to my chagrin said that josh was his favorite host so is this a good one tradition was your brother mistaken can you maybe enlighten the audience I, i've always thought you were smarter than reed but you know we'll let, we'll let the audience be the judge well i mean i'm not gonna uh accept or deny any of those allegations right there i definitely will say that uh, uh the show is a great show i enjoy both of my hosts and listening to them weekly uh no problems there uh reed has his uh his ideas and his own thoughts he's his own person uh i will say it's definitely uh, uh he has been successful in what he does and i let him do that i've been successful in what i do and i do uh, what I do so it's uh, it's something where we both focus in on uh, what we do well and uh, move forward from there you are a future politician in the making it's good to see that your political career is bright <laughs> with that kind of answer um, so we talked about the Bush China Foundation on the show some um, so that's what you're here to talk about so let's kind of get into that some um, give me the 30 second pitch on what the foundation is Let's talk about the event that we have coming up, and and then why is it so important? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I really appreciate that, Ryan. And again, uh, uh, get some time to talk about the Bush China Foundation, especially on this show. It's just such an honor. Um, well, first of all, George H.W. Bush Foundation and U.S.-China Relations uh, is the only presidentially named uh, foundation that focuses on the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, it is one of three private foundations that uh, carry on uh, President Bush's uh, legacy um, of his time in office, as well as his, uh, as a public servant, um, as well as uh, his post-presidency uh, and the work that he did uh, for our country and for the world after that, um, uh, along with the, the uh, Points of Light Foundation, which is the volunteerism organization, and the Barbara Bush Literacy Foundation, uh, which is Barbara Bush's uh, uh, organization. We have the Bush China Foundation. All three of these organizations are chaired by uh, Barbara and George Bush's uh, third son, Neil Bush. Uh, and I'm honored to work at the Bush China Foundation uh, actually starting September 1st, uh, but predating that for the last year in a pro bono capacity as the director of business affairs, uh, business programs and corporate affairs. What we do primarily is look to uh, carry forward President Bush's legacy uh, on U.S.-China relations, which is one of the uh, uh, one of the best known legacies out there uh, for the people who work in U.S.-China relations uh, for his stewardship of the relationship through a very difficult time. Uh, and we carry forward that uh, as a way of um, trying to inject uh, some ideas and some uh, different thoughts on how we deal with the difficult problems that we have uh, as Americans with, uh, with the country of China. Um, but understanding that China is a indispensable part of uh, a peaceful world, a prosperous world, uh, that, that being a uh, one of the other very large countries out there, economies that are rising up in the world, uh, a country that has 20% of the world's population. Uh, as Americans, it's something that we have to deal with and we have to work with and work through the problems, but also find opportunities to, uh, to cooperate. And so I'm really blessed to do that on the business side. Uh, President Bush was an old man. Uh, he came to Texas to, uh, to run an old business, uh, and he uh, worked and lived in Houston for many years. Um, and so being uh, here in Texas, uh, I'm based out of Dallas. Foundation is national in scope. Uh, we have employees in Austin, Houston, uh, New York, and New Jersey. Uh, but we definitely uh, have a strong affinity for Texas. We have a strong affinity for oil and gas. And we really see energy as one of the places that uh, is a true uh, opportunity for a win for America as well as a win for China. Uh, a win for American jobs and paychecks and a win for China uh, in, the, in being able to develop its economy and being able to bring down its carbon emissions and use green uh, U.S. natural gas and uh, resources such as this at a market level that they can accept and that they can uh, that that'll that'll help their country as well as help our country. So that's what I work on uh, day in day out. Ryan, you and I have had uh, many good discussions over the last couple months. We've known each other about this topic, and I look forward to delving uh, into it more in the future. Yeah. So one of the things we were just covering a story with uh, Mexico with Pemex and. 
um, if you're familiar with what happened there, you know the previous president kind of opened it up for outside companies, investors to come in and you know, uh, take advantage of Mexico's vast resources. The new president has changed those laws. One of the things that I've been interested in, in the foundation and the work you guys are doing is, is you're trying to say, hey, you know what? We understand that, that the government can come and get in the way, and you know policies change, but you're trying to make sure that um, the people on the ground, folks like us and the listeners, are are able to still make those connections, do business, and put out good ideas about how policies should be written in the future. Can you kind of walk us through um, how you guys tackle that? And some, you know, for the listeners out there, they're going, okay, well, um, you know, there's there's these problems uh, that that President Bush, uh, President Trump's trying to uh, trying to address, and we can agree or disagree with those. But there is a reality that that business still has to go on. So how do you try, how do you guys try to push that ball down the field, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I appreciate that. And, you know, with any other country that you're going into as an American uh, producer, it's a Texas uh, producer and business person, uh, you're definitely walking into a completely different uh, political environment, policy environment, cultural environment. And so, uh, you know, recognizing opportunities, obviously, is the first step. And knowing what the possibilities are and what could uh, what you could do uh, better as a company uh, to expand internationally or to engage with international capital or investors uh, is definitely the first step. So that's what we uh, work on with our business forums. And we go out, uh, I was uh, all across the country. I was just in Arkansas yesterday, got in uh, quite late last night from Little Rock, Arkansas to uh, uh, talk about their opportunities uh, for Arkansas and the Arkansas business community. Um, and then we do that around here in Texas quite a bit as well. We uh, work closely with the University of Texas as well as A&M uh, to, put on, uh, essentially to put on forums and convenings uh, that allow people to get together and talk about and explore those real opportunities. And we can delve into some of those opportunities, uh, such as uh, the possibilities of having Chinese capital investing in U.S. infrastructure or uh, the what it will take for uh, China to be able to fully uh, become a market player in purchasing of U.S. natural gas or U.S. LNG. And so when we, through that process of reaching out and having these discussions, we're obviously bringing a lot of information, but we're also listening to what the concerns are and what the different issues are at the ground level with, uh, with the producers, uh, with the service providers uh, who are either contemplating working with China in some fashion uh, or who already have uh, to, uh, to an extent and learning from them where the uh, where the issues are, so that we can then bring that back up a level to our uh, to our think tank work and to our work where we put out policy ideas and innovative policy recommendations uh, at all levels of government, from the state, from the local, county, uh, state, and up to the federal government. And we work with um, all levels of government in both the U.S. and China uh, to help give them guidance on where the areas that they can optimize their policy so that it works better for their community, uh, so that it works better for the parties that are uh, that are living under these policies. And as you referenced Mexico, uh, that's also an area where we have um, 
really been a leading uh, uh, voice in discussing uh, China and the U.S. relationship with China, but also the regional relationship that we have with Mexico as well as Canada. Uh, but being based in Texas, Mexico uh, largely outweighs that. But thinking about these economic relationships in terms of U.S., Mexico, and China, and what are the uh, trilateral kind of uh, efficiencies or policies that could be put into place that, that help our producers is something that we do uh, quite a bit. And so, you know, what that, to wrap all that up for your listeners, how that all comes out is that uh, we end up um, putting out uh, and into both the public sphere via media uh, shows, via interviews, uh, via appearances like this, but also into the um, policy arena via reports that we will uh, provide to policymakers, uh, white papers, briefs, things of that nature, uh, true policy recommendations that we think could help optimize a relationship and get us into a better place for our uh, for the citizens of both nations as well as the companies. Uh, and at the end result is to make a better uh, world out there for our uh, for for everyone um, because that's what President Bush thought. Only through working with China in full partnership could we have a better um, could we have a better world for everyone. Okay, last question. We are up against the clock here. We have the the conference, which is on the 28th and 29th in Houston. You will have some brilliant minds like myself who will be in attendance there, trying to solve these complex uh, issues. Um, I, I thought I could single handedly solve them, but you you're going to bring in other folks, and so I, I appreciate that. I respect that. What else can you tell us about the conference, and where can they find out more information? Yeah. Well, look, the conference is coming up, as you said. Uh, this is the first George H.W. Bush conference on U.S.-China relations uh, since President Bush's passing. So we're holding it in its uh, adopted hometown of Houston, Texas, at the Houstonian Hotel, which was his previous uh, address prior to taking up a residence at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it's, uh, it's going to be a conference that covers many topics in the U.S.-China relationship, but some of the most important include the trade relationship, uh, and we have partnerships with uh, the China General Chamber of Commerce as well as the U.S.-China Business Council to tackle that those issues. And energy is a very large focus of the conference, and that's uh, obviously why, Ryan, we want your uh, your voice there and uh, to represent Texas Oil and Gas and to be able to discuss these topics. And we're also working with the Greater Houston Partnership uh, in order to bring together really a world-level uh, energy panel that will talk about uh, the, benef the, the benefits of U.S. and China working together on energy, as well as what are the issues that we need to work through and how can we work through those. So if anyone's interested in taking part, uh, obviously they can reach out um, uh, to you, Ryan, to get mm -hmm. more information. Mm -hmm. uh, for your, uh, your listeners may or may not be aware, but Ryan uh, uh, has you know come on as part of our conference organizing committee to help guide some of the programming of the conference, as well as reach out to uh, listeners and companies that uh, would like to be affiliated uh, with the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S. China Relations, as well as the conference uh, itself. Uh, and then uh, if you don't want to reach out to Ryan, you can uh, reach out to me uh, at, uh, via email, um, rgoodman at bushchinafoundation.org, or you can go to our conference website at uh, thebushchinaconference.org. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm friends with Ryan. Uh, I'm yeah. also uh, on Twitter, as well as our foundations on uh, Twitter, and it's very easy to find us. 
Okay, we will link to the conference, which is bushchinaconference.org. We'll link to your LinkedIn as well. I like how you omitted my, um, that you didn't need me alone. I appreciate that. It's okay. I, I caught that. Uh, it was good to get you on. Good to talk about this conference. This is super important stuff that if you talk, listen to this show, obviously it's pretty clear where we stand on free trade and getting things done and doing business. So um, we're very supportive of this foundation and what you guys are doing. Robin, thank you for your time. I know you're super busy and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Look, I really appreciate it, Ryan, and I, I can't wait to have our next conversation on, uh, on Texas Oil and Gas. Thank you, sir. All right, we have another guest, uh, Mr. Dan. Wait, hold on a second, Dan. Uh, Stephens, or is it Stevens? Stephens, okay. Start with that. Start that over. We have another guest, Dan Stephens. He's the president of the Energy Prospectus Group, a networking organization for energy investors. Dan, appreciate you having on the show. Uh, having you on the show today, man. How's things going? Yeah, going good. Need a higher oil price, but that'll help. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. Well, Dan, uh, we got some stuff that you sent over. You've been uh, following some of the uh, EIA uh, reports and looking at some of the storage production uh, and price numbers, and uh, you had some interesting takes on that. So tell us kind of how you arrived at at, uh, some of the conversations you've been having, uh, some of the posts uh, that you sent over. Well, I think right now, the paradigm or assumptions on wall street is that you know there's plenty of oil out there there's plenty of oil production that can be had for 50 dollar oil and i just don't believe that i think the u.s oil production has um, just growth has just gone totally flat and as you guys know if the active rig count continues to decline there's no way u.s oil production can grow the way it's grown the last two years and that assumption of continual growth has been baked into the IEA and EIA forecast and uh, without U.S. production growth I don't see there's much chance that we're not going to have a very supply of demand tightness in the market within just a few months. One of the things that we've talked about on the show is as the recount falls, you know, the production kind of lags, you know, maybe two or three months behind before you start seeing that. But we were talking earlier in the show that, you know, by first quarter of next year, if this trend continues, you'd expect to see that it kind of turns over where the price almost has to rebound. Obviously, you are kind of curious to, to see how much the trade war is keeping prices down and stuff like that. But just from a strict number standpoint, it feels like if this, like you're saying, that this trend continues, early Q1 2020 should turn over. Does that sound kind of about where you're thinking at? Oh, yeah. I just, I think we're months away. I, I think something that's not hardly getting any coverage is this impact of the IMO 2020 regulations that require uh, ships to use lower sulfur fuel. Uh, that's less than three months away, and that could take like a million barrels a day of supply off the market. You know, it's, 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 I had to cut you off, but generally you mentioned that because we had on our other show that I do, Energy Week, we had on someone from Drilling Info, and they said that you know, when those standards come in, that the light speed crude the U.S. produces actually is really perfectly suited for that. So maybe not necessarily for the Brents of the world, but for the WTIs of the world, it, it could actually uh, have more of an impact just because of um, refining capacities. Oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, I follow Raymond James real carefully, and they've been harping on this all year, but I don't hardly see any other analysts picking it up. Uh, you, you know, I think today the the time frame on Wall Street and with traders is about 10 minutes. Uh, you know, a long-term trade is weeks, not 
you know months or years anymore and uh, they don't consider things until they're right upon us so uh plus i also think i think the view that demand for oil is going to decline because of this trade war or something well maybe a few hundred thousand barrels a day but it's not going to be like go negative uh demand growth for oil just is going to continue over and over. I write a newsletter and, and do a weekly podcast. And I pointed out that the, as long as the global population is growing and there's nothing indicating it's not going to keep growing, every human is an energy consumer. And, uh, you know, every one of these kids needs a new cell phone and a new computer every other year. And all those things take energy uh, and they take, you know, oil and gas and coal to produce the electricity and they take oil, gas and coal to make the, the thing they want so uh, I just don't see demand for oil going down anytime soon yeah one of the things that you've sent over Josh's reference earlier is you said the EIA and IEA um, you know, that, 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 that's hey that they kind of underestimate the demand growth and one of the things that we've talked about on the show repeatedly is this idea that um, you know oil is going to be done by 2040 2025 2030 whatever the case would be well the problem with that is is that you're assuming that there is that that, that continents like Africa and South America are not going to progress towards first world standard. The more they progress towards first world standard, um, the more energy they're going to consume. And I know it's a hard number to quantify, but it feels like most of these projections completely ignore that possibility. And if you start taking those, if you start thinking about that in a serious manner, um, the price, the long-term price of oil should be very good. And it should be a very good industry to be a part of because of that. No, absolutely correct. As people move up the food chain, let's say, in standard of living, there's an inflection point where now they want cars. They don't. They want to quit walking everywhere. They want to quit riding bikes everywhere. They actually at least want a, a gas-fired motor scooter or motorcycle, and then a car eventually, and a SUV next. And uh, I just don't see that stopping unless people are just going to be accepting of a lower standard of living. But you know, you look in our country and now you look in China as people rise up into the higher levels of uh, standard of living they're just going to consume more and more energy and most of it's going to come from hydrocarbons and you know the, these politicians that say we can ban fracking or we don't need hydrocarbon based fuels anymore are just talking crazy talk because they they if you notice they never mention how they're going to replace it they say they're going to get rid of it because that's what you know their followers want and that's what the progressives want to hear but they never say how they're going to replace it and very few people can understand the scale of the oil and gas market it is gigantic and you don't replace four or five hundred thousand filling stations overnight with you know uh recharging stations up and down right. every street so it, you know and you don't make a tesla without you know, oil and gas that required to make that steel and all that. And they kind of forget. I, I was at a luncheon on Friday in Houston with some very smart people. And one guy brought up this concept that what they're really talking about is the electrification of everything. And he, he said, there's not enough copper in the world to come close to what they're projecting for all this electrification of everything. 
Hmm. That, that's interesting. I haven't heard that uh, theorized before. That's an interesting concept. Let me, let me ask you this. One of the things that you said that um, in your comments were that um, you you kind of believe that it's going to go above 60. We have a, a listener who's a kind of an investor type, and he and he's repeatedly said, we've kind of echoed his comments on the show from his standpoint at least, that, that the small mid-cap type companies won't be able to survive. They haven't made um, money. The Wall Street, as you mentioned, um, is you know short-minded, but they're also they're tired of kind of not getting returns. Um, if we do see this uptick, do you think that could be the savior these small companies need, or do you think that we're still going to see a more transition to um, a, a, play, a play that Permian has more of the majors out there than you know um, a, a lot fewer small uh, EMP companies? Well, the one thing with the smaller companies, I, and that's my primary focus is looking at small cap and mid cap public companies, but the smaller companies are getting cut off from capital and this is a very capital intensive business. And uh, so they, they're kind of forced to live within cash flow, and they can, you know, if oil stays in the mid fifties, they can, they can, you know, survive. But the reason I say, I think sub sub $60 oil is unsustainable is because in order to grow production or even sustain production, we're going to have to keep drawing more and more wells each year. And a lot of this good acreage is tied up in some of these smaller companies. I think we're going to see a period of a lot of m and I, I think these uh, transactions, like you see uh, Carrizo and uh, Callan merging, uh, PDC Energy and uh, SRC Energy merging up in the DJ Basin, I think you're going to see some of that to just gain scale. And once those companies, you know, are producing 100,000, 200,000 barrels a day, in the case of PDC, uh, they're going to be more attractive to the bankers and the Wall Street gang. And so they have more access to capital. Okay, one more question um, for you is, I consider myself a duck agnostic. I don't know how many there are, how viable they are. I just kind of say, well, we'll we'll see where it shakes out. But I'm always curious to various opinions about ducks. Where do you come in on the duck debate? Do you think there are, whatever it is, 7,000 the EIA says there is? Uh, we had on some folks a few months ago said so there's far less than that. Um, and what 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 value do you ascribe to ducks, if any, um, uh, when you're kind of looking at those numbers? Oh, the, okay, the duck wells. <laughs> I wasn't sure. You were talking about there for a minute. Uh, drilled but uncompleted wells or duck wells are pretty much back to normal now. There was a, a surge of completions at the end of last year and early this year, but now that the uh, active drilling rig count is so much lower, uh, the number of duck wells is kind of back to normal. I mean, there's there's always thousands of duck wells because there's wells, you know, from the time you drill the wells and the time you complete them, there's a lag. And also more and more companies are going in the shale place where they're drilling a bunch of wells from a single location before they bring in completion crews. So they may drill six or eight wells from a pad and then they'll bring in the completion crews. So that kind of builds up this duck inventory. So there's always gonna be, you know, several thousand wells waiting on completion crews, but this year, let's say there's suddenly the paradigm shift and they think there's an oil shortage. There's not a big duck inventory that's going to rescue us overnight. Okay. You mentioned earlier you have a podcast. Uh, you think you said you had a newsletter. Energyperspectus.com is the website. Tell people what else you have to offer, where they can find you, how they can connect with you, and learn more about what you have going on. 
Yeah, well, we're a networking group for in investors. Uh, I call them self-directed investors. And what we really provide is unbiased uh, net income and cash flow forecasts, primarily on public companies and primarily on upstream oil and gas and some midstream. I do have some of the midstreams. We have two uh, growth portfolios for upstream companies, one for uh, mid caps and one for small caps. And then we have a high yield income portfolio on our newsletter. And we're looking for companies that have very sustainable dividends and potentially dividend growth. Uh, it's it, We call them members, but basically they're subscribers to our service. If you just go to our website and you, uh, you know, scroll around on there and, and then uh, click down and it says join now and it's $350 a year to be a member and that gets the newsletter and access to all the reports and we each quarter we uh, update profiles and forecast models on 50 or 60 upstream and midstream companies and they are excel spreadsheets you can download them and you can play with the assumptions at the bottom if you don't agree with the oil price assumption that i use in the forecast models you can change it and see how that uh, impacts their net income and cash flow and the main thing to look at now is cash flow Okay, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes so people can go check that out. Uh, Dan, it was great to have you on. We've been kind of working on this for a while. I think Joe Dancy is the one who recommended you, so thanks, Joe, for uh, hooking us up with Dan. Enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, hopefully get you back on maybe early next year to kind of see where we're at with these predictions and um, you know how the, how the market's trending. Okay, thanks a lot. And if any of your listeners are in the Houston and Dallas area, we have luncheons coming up in both Houston and Dallas, and they can register for those uh, on the website. And actually, the one on Wednesday, uh, we have Matt Marshall. He works for a uh, oil and gas trading company, set up their hedging programs, and he's going to be our opening speaker. And he's got some real interesting views on the uh, oil and gas market and how the prices are okay. set. Well, that sounds awesome. Unfortunately, I won't be up in Denver, so I won't be able to be there. But uh, I'll have to catch one next time. Dan, thank you so much for coming on, and look forward to having you again on in the future. Thank you, sir. All right, thanks a lot. All right, thanks again for Robin and Dan coming on the show today. Boy, Robin, the politician, completely just dodged that question, didn't he? he did it was smooth. It was smooth. Smooth. It right. was real smooth. Well, I respect my brother, and my brother's been successful, and things are going great, and I love the show, and I'm honored to be here, and wow, just straight dodged it. He's got a bright future of not being called a communist ahead of him. <laughs> that was impressive, I will say. I will say. So, uh, yeah, that was good. And Dan, I like that. I'm curious. Now, with Dan's comments, you know who's going to come out of the woodworks. Spigner. Spigner, the prophet of doom. I'm sure we'll be responding to that. We'll have all those things for you guys next week. And until then, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.